Uh, just uh, obviously we know that we're short some, some members today and some people, and so we just want to uh, have our thoughts and prayers out to them um, as they battle through um, sickness. We just pray that the Lord uh, put His healing hands over them and just help heal their bodies and bring them back here next week or, Lord willing, in the next two weeks, we'll have them back this morning or, I'm sorry, in a few weeks. And so, also, if you're watching online and there's any way we can pray for you, please reach out to us and we can get somebody to uh, reach out to you and um, pray for you. So, if there's any prayers that are needed, please um, let us know. You can send us a comment um, or a message uh, on our social media. Our um, text today is going to be in Psalm 119. We're going to continue our study um, throughout this Psalm 119. We're going to bring it back this week. And speaking of that, a few weeks ago, I taught on Psalm 119. And, uh, as I taught on one, Psalm 119, we focused on the meditation of the psalmist in verse 121 to 128, being a servant of the Lord. And we saw the emphasis in the text of that stanza of the word servant. And also, we looked at a total broad view of Psalm 119. So we had a micro and a macro view of the servanthood of the author in his song of praise. But today, we will focus on another meditation of the psalmist in this stanza. And that word is righteousness. We'll be in verses 137 to 144 this morning. Righteousness in regards to God and His Word. So I've titled our message this morning, The Righteousness of God and His Word. Five times in total in this next stanza of song, the servant of the Lord writes the word that is the focus and heart of his meditation. In verse 137, if you're there, you'll see. He says, you are righteous, Lord. In verse 138, you have commanded your testimonies in righteousness. In verse 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And lastly, in verse 144, your testimonies are righteousness forever. The word in total is used 15 times throughout Psalm 119, with a third of the time used right here in these next verses, eight verses of the stanza. We have all heard this word used before, whether from a biblical standpoint or from some other view of law or judicial system of justice. We've heard the words that pertains to God and to God's decrees, but have we ever really thought about it? So what is the righteousness of God? And what is the righteousness of his word? Now it will be asinine to think that we could extrapolate the righteousness of God and his word in this message this morning completely with eight verses of a stanza of song or in any one lesson or sermon or lecture. Uh, we could go deeper and deeper and deeper and make a life's work of the righteousness of God and his word. However, we will look to get a deeper understanding of what makes God righteous, why he is righteous, and how God, who is righteous, must stand to reason that his word is also righteous. So if you'll please stand with me one more time as we read our text today. We'll be in Psalm 119, verses 
137 to 144. This is the word of the living God. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open up your word, we pray that you give each and every one of us spiritual eyes and ears to receive your word for us this morning, your perfect word, your righteous word. Pray that you allow it to saturate our thoughts and be the thoughts of hearts and our meditation this morning, your righteousness and your word. We pray that we be edified in that, Lord. We pray that we be encouraged in that, Lord, and be convicted in that. Whichever way you need your people to be this morning, we pray that it be done. Pray for the members that aren't here, Lord. We pray that you keep them safe. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our first heading this morning is the attribute of righteousness in verses 137 and 138. The psalmist opens this stanza in verse 137 with the acknowledgement of the heart and declaration of our examination this morning. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. To speak of the righteousness of God is to speak of one of God's attributes. That is the righteousness of God. It is one of the most prominent attributes of God in Scripture. To define righteousness, however, in human standards is, to define, is defined as the quality of being morally true or justifiable. Righteousness, as defined in relation to God, is the quality of being right in the eyes of God, including his character or nature, his conscience or attitude, his conduct or action, and his command or word. Righteousness is therefore based upon God's standards because he is the ultimate lawgiver. We must understand that the judgment of God's are right. And just because God is always consistent with his character, God's word is righteous, God's judgments are righteous, and God's character is righteous because he defines in character the term righteousness. God is not defined by the terms of righteousness, though, as much as the term righteousness is defined by God. There is a great comfort, then, in knowing that the God we serve and love is a righteous God. A God whose very nature is righteousness. It exudes from his being. It is a defined character that he defines to creation, and he reveals to that creation of his revelation through his word. And in being the very nature of righteousness, we understand that he will always do what is right and just. Believe it or not, there is a statistical index that measures and rates judicial powers and systems on a world platform called the WJP Rule of Law Index. It measures constraints of government power, 
absence of corruption, fundamental rights, one government, order and security, regulatory enforcement, civil justice, and criminal justice. The countries who are bottom performers were Venezuela, Cambodia, Congo, Egypt, and Cameroon, with the top performers of the world being Denmark, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and the Netherlands. The United States, for the first time ever, has fallen out of the top 20 countries for the adherence to the rule of law in an index compiled by the World Justice Project. We currently sit at 21. In individual rankings, the United States was ranked 13th for open government, 19th for absence of corruption, and 20th for regulatory enforcement. Its lowest individual rank was civil justice at 36. In the report, considering the seven measures of civil justice, the United States had a lower score for absence of discrimination and accessibility. Now, while these are all interesting facts and each one of our thoughts will think differently of these statistics, the point being made here is that we are privileged to live in a great country and have some of what a framework of an established judicial system. However, we can see that even in our country, that standards in a worldview, we are still ranked 21st. And even the top five countries on this index that rest on the index law are still susceptible to being flawed and corrupted. Because at, why, at the end of the day, every judicial system in the world is, in Iran, by flawed and sinful people. So we would be naive to think that in any judicial system, that we would have a pure and just system that vindicates the wrong and charges the guilty 100% of the time with unbias. We see trials every day in which polarizing outcomes are aplenty. A guilty man is pardoned of his criminal crimes, or an innocent man is sentenced to death. We have such outcomes and inconsistencies because man is inconsistent, sinful, and fallen. Man is susceptible to corruption because he is in fact corrupt to his core in sin. Praise be to God then that we have a great comfort in knowing in every outcome we have a righteous God that we serve, who has not an ounce of darkness, no remnant or nano speck of sin. He is not inconsistent with his character, swayed by the thoughts of others, or cannot be con corrupted. In that, we take great comfort that he ranks supremely over every measure of category that the WJP index could ever rank. In a country where we rank 19th in corruption, God supremely ranks first, and nothing could measure to the degree of his just and righteousness. That is the judge and juror that we serve. And we see why the psalmist here writes after his praise of the Lord's righteousness that upright are your judgments. Every judgment or testimony written in God's revealed word is upright, unbiased, unmatched, true and trustworthy, unequivocal, and ethical. Verse 138, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. If God is righteous and he has ordained his word to be revealed to us, then it must stand to reason that his testimonies, which is his revealed word, is righteous and faithful. The Bible speaks of the righteousness of God's word. Isaiah 45, 19, For thus says the Lord, I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak 
righteousness, declaring things that are upright. And Deuteronomy 7, 4, 7 through 9, as Israel is called to obey God's law, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as to the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that the statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today. And lastly, the Apostle Paul in his magnum opus, his letter to the Church of Rome in Romans seven twelve says, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we cannot deny God's testimonies are not righteous. The Bible is very clear and concise of that. But it's not a book or pages or words written down on a piece of paper that make it righteous. This book in and of itself has no inherent power in and of itself. Instead, it contains the very appointed words and testimony of the righteous one himself that gives power to the word. That is why the author states in confidence here, you have commanded your testimonies, which is God's word in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. The great I am has commanded his word in righteousness, thus it be so. We can then draw near in confidence when reading God's word to know that he has commanded and ordained his very word to reveal righteousness in his character and in his gospel. Well, how then does God show us faithfulness in his righteousness? By sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice to the atonement of sin and to reconcile his people back to himself. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over to us. By the works of the son, Jesus fulfilled the law. He did not override it. He satisfied the law. He did not supersede it. And that is how we see the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the Old Testament, we see through the law of Moses, a sacrificial system needed to atone for the sins of the people. And now through the new covenant, God has established his righteousness through his son satisfying the law and being the sacrificial lamb to once and for all atone for the sin of God's elect. This is how God demonstrated that he is just and justifier. Paul explains that to us in Romans 4.24. For being justified as a gift by his grace, the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration at the present time, so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do we see the inner working of God's righteousness here, church? We can learn from the text that God is the source of righteousness and because God is just and holy and that God's justice demands that every sin and every sinner be punished. So how then does he demonstrate that since we are fall, that we all fall short of God's righteous law? He sends his son to fulfill that penalty. That debt was fulfilled by the finished work of Christ on the cross. Christ's death is a substitutionary atonement to pay the debt owed for you and for me. The wages of sin is death, and God's payment and God demands payment. How does he do that? By publicly demonstrating his righteousness to all by Jesus' death on a cross. 
being just and justifier. These are all legal forensic terms here. Being justified as giving a verdict. The wisdom of God's plan allowed him to punish Jesus in the place of sinners and thereby justify those who are guilty without compromising his justice. Wow, what an amazing way God has revealed that to us. This is why we say that his righteousness is an attribute of God. It is united with his holiness as being essential to his very nature. God does, does not just say that of himself. No, he shows his creation, his righteousness. He doesn't just act righteous, he is righteous. He will always think and, and he always thinks and does what is right and acts in perfect goodness and it cannot be compromised. The psalmist gives us a model of how this should look in our own lives. He acknowledges God's character of righteousness. We know by his master's righteousness being, he can affirm that his statutes and judgments are upright and his testimonies are written in righteousness and thus desires to do what is right in the sight of his master. His zeal of God's righteousness has consumed him because of those who are around him have forgotten God's word. Our second heading today is the zeal for God's righteousness. Verse 139, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. The servant of God here is only doing what God has revealed to him in his thoughts and heart through his word. A desire to please his master and to practice righteousness. If we are not to practice lawlessness, will we not cry out when we see a crime committed that goes unpunished? But I will challenge each of you all to think about what that looks like in your own life. The thought of being a Christian is commonly only thought to be a life led of humility and meekness, to submit to the common good and to keep peace amongst others, to not offend someone even if they, have, they are offensively living out a life and practicing a life of sin and lawlessness. In our society today, there is an ever-increasing need to keep the peace and to make concessions for people's flaws and attitudes or way of living. But have you ever thought of how Christians need to instead have a righteous zeal to be sensitized to gross and immoral sin and to respond correctly? This zeal the author speaks of is similar to the way David used this word in Psalm 69 verse 9, for zeal of your house has consumed me and the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. David loved the house of the Lord, and he was consumed with righteous zeal for those who taunted God. It is no different than for those of us. Each one of us here has a family. And let me ask you men, as head of the household, how would you feel if someone came to your house and taunted your family? How would you feel if they mocked and spoke lies about you? How would you, would you feel the need to defend them? Would you feel the need to stand up for what is right? Would you be shaken up with zeal to speak truth to them? Well, of course you would. And this is no different than to those who oppose the house of the Lord. 
This, script, this verse of scripture is tied to and reminds me of Jesus in the temple during the Passover in John's Gospel in chapter 2, verses 13 and 16. Please turn with me there. John t- chapter 2, quickly, uh, verses 13 through 16. Jesus cleanses the temple. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Did Jesus not display this here for us? Did he stand passively by and watch as the wicked around him disregarded his father's temple? Jesus, the son of man and God, showed his righteous indignation in the face of opposition to those who would forget God's law. He would not tolerate irreverence towards his father. And likewise, David, when he wrote his psalm, did so while being persecuted because he stood for zeal for God's house and defended God's honor because why? He loved God, the righteous one he served. And it hurt him to see God and his word be so disregarded. Is it then appropriate to remain unbothered unchallenged and unchanged when faced with sin around us? How are you to respond to those who practice lawlessness, those who pompously disregard the word of God? How then are Christians to respond to such situations like child abortions, the heinous act of taking the life of a child ripped from their mother's room to be murdered, Are we to side with the worldview of my body, my choice? Or are we to burn with righteous zeal to stand up for what God's word says he stands for? If abortions are okay, then what are we to do with texts that say, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Or Psalm 139, 13, For you formed my inner inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And yet, we see this happen daily because of the lack of the fear of the Lord. How then are we as Christians to respond to family members or friends or acquaintances or co-workers or politicians who continuously perform the deeds of the wicked? Are we to passively stand by? I love Charles Spurgeon's commentary here that says that he passionately states, quote, Have we not some who profess to be Christians, who know the truth, but live as if they had forgotten it? End quote. Beloved, we cannot be quieted by the deeds of the wicked. We cannot be content 
with sin in and around us and be silenced because of fear to speak the truth of God's word. Let that not be so. If we love God and God is righteous and hates sin, then we must have a righteous zeal to also hate sin. We cannot love our Savior and love our sin. That is why Jesus said that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. To be devoted to God is to despise evil and wickedness. That is what we read this morning in our call to worship. Psalm 11. He said, The Lord tests the righteous, that is so hates the wicked, and the ones who loves violence. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. You cannot serve both. To be both is to be the double-minded. And that is why the psalmist says here in verse 113 in Psalm 118, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. Christians should and must speak up for the truth of God's word. It is the Christian's duty to do so. We are certain that there will be some who will suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Romans 1.32, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, listen to this, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The world is corrupted in sin and led by the prince of this world who lead the ungodly and not only continuing to mock God in unrighteousness, but give approval to all who practice it. Part of being a light in darkness is to shine a light of God's righteous decrees to a sinful world, to speak boldly like King David and the giants of the faith, and to do so consumed by the zeal for the Lord and his perfect righteousness in his revealed word. The thrust here for the fervent zeal of the author is explained next in verse 140. Your promises are well tried. Your servant loves it. I love the NASB translation here that says, Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. The servant's desire of zeal for the Lord and his word is given a reason. Your words are very pure. This word pure is used in the same context as King David used in Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. God's word is pure because God is pure, just, and holy. His word is not, has no imperfection or impurity in it. It has been refined not once, twice, or six times, but seven. So what would be the implication then of refining a metal so many times? To produce a pure metal, a pure substance. Likewise, with God's word, it stands as uncontaminated. It is undiluted. It is unadulterated. It has been processed and refined by the Lord to be flawless and perfect. The Bible is inerrant and without mistake. and is set apart by the righteous decree to be revealed to creation 
what we need to know as God sees fit to reveal to us. And for that reason, the psalmist's heart has not changed during this long song of praise. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all of Scripture, demonstrates the zeal he has for God's word. Why? Because of his undeniable zeal for his master, his Lord, and his creator. And that is why the servant of God loves it. He loves God's trustworthy word because he loves and is devoted to God who defines what it means to be trustworthy and upright. Our last heading this morning is Everlasting Righteousness. Verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. The God-centered attribute of righteousness is not finite. God's righteousness does not start when each one of us is born and ends when we perish. Because if the earth failed to exist tomorrow, God would still exist to be righteous. The righteousness of, of, the righteousness of God is not something that he performs in an act or an instance and then ceases to be until further needed from God or as he sees fit. Neither is it so with God that he would change his mind of his righteousness or character of righteousness to be circumstantial in any given event in time or throughout the God of Scripture in redemptive history. God is righteousness, therefore his righteousness is everlasting. If we say that God is everlasting to everlasting, then we must say that God's righteousness is everlasting to everlasting. God has revealed to us his righteousness in his word. But let us not be fooled to think that his righteousness began in Genesis 1, at the garden, and it ends in Revelation. His righteousness is not contained through recorded history. It is transcendent of that. It does not, has not, and will not ever change. That's what the word forever means here in the Hebrew. In this context, it means an un indeterminate and unending time going into the future. In other words, eternity. God's character of honesty and justness is accurate and right to adhere to what is required according to the standards set by God. It is morally excellent forever. It does not change. And this is the beauty and splendor of an immutable God. So why then is this such a great comfort to those of us who are in Christ Jesus? Why is this text so rich and comforting to the soul this morning? Because those of us who are in Christ, justified by faith alone, have had Christ's righteousness imputed to us as sinners on the cross. And now because of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to the believer, that justification is irrevocable. It is everlasting. Because those who he predestined was an everlasting predestination. Those whom he called was an everlasting calling. Those whom he justified was an everlasting justification. And those whom he glorified was an everlasting glorification. And so the psalmist testifies to that truth with bold confidence and zeal. And your law is truth. His word is pure. 
His character is just. And so we can draw confidently to the truth because he who speaks only truth. Though trouble and anguish have found this servant of God, through all the trials, mockery, persecution, and affliction, he can take heart and delight in the righteous decree and commandments of God. This is a reoccurring theme over and over and over again through Psalm 119. If we have been pardoned by the Lord and Christ has imputed his righteousness unto you, then we can take delight in whatever trials this world will throw our way. Because the God of the universe and the God of Scripture has declared it to be so. The psalmist shows once again a certainty of some sort of anguish and distress and then takes delight in the instruction of God's word. If we have not seen a pattern yet, then let's please see what instruction this has for us here in one of the biggest themes in Psalm 119. Life is giving you grief, sorrow, and anguish. Be led by God's word and take the light. Life has confused you, burdened you. Go to God's word to be instructed. Life has closed in around you with burdens, economic distress, health issues, friendships, work, finances. Seek God's word and be led to joy by his everlasting promises. The psalmist closes his stanza here by once again wrapping up and circling back to the heart of his meditation. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Once again, we see legal provision and judicial terms being used here as it refers to God's righteousness. Here the term testimonies, it means a witness, a, a solemn statement made under oath as part of a covenant. It refers to the law given to Moses, the records of the tabernacle, or the, the tabernacle of testimonies, as it was called, and so meant to be lived out uh, as in Second Chronicles 34 or 31, and the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written down in this book. The psalmist is pleading and praying to the Lord here to allow him understanding to see the everlasting righteousness in his word to produce an everlasting life in it. This reminds me of what Peter must have felt when Jesus asked the twelve, do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter answered the Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So understanding in God's word is the fruit of saving knowledge. We can come to life in God's word in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way to eternal life. If we're speaking in legal terms here of righteousness, in this context, God's righteousness, then we have to understand something clearly and concisely. Because God is supremely holy and just. He has set a moral standard of perfection. Otherwise, he would cease to be so. And because his law is perfect and true, it is set supremely high as he is. 
and thus it is unattainable to any one of us. To pass the test would be to live a life of perfect obedience to the law, to be blameless and sinless. That is why scripture says that all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And no amount of works you or I could ever do could obtain us eternal life. So then how then do we obtain understanding so we can live and, and see, be pardoned by this law of righteousness and perfection? What well, is obtained by faith and belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because he did those things that no one in the history of mankind could ever do. He came and lived a perfect life, a life of perfect obedience to the law, and thus his sacrifice was sufficient for our sins on the cross. And now, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, for you have been clothed in his righteousness. What a wonderful mercy and grace. Salvation was only the work of one person ever, the finished and accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to know something that's hard, but loving and true. This life is fleeting. It is like a vapor in the wind. It is like flowers in the field. And we do not know when our time will be up. None of us here are promised tomorrow. I have been a witness to that these last few weeks as I have seen numerous people I know that have passed away. And so if you have come here today to hear the pure truth of God's righteous word, then I leave you with this. There is a righteous God who demands payment of your sin, and that payment is death and eternal judgment and wrath. There is only one way, one road that leads to the truth and eternal life, and that way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel. It would be the greatest decision you ever make, an everlasting decision. You too can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you that you are unbiased, Lord, um, that you did not take account our sins for those of us who are in Christ. Lord, we sin, and we sin, and we sin, and, and we deserve punishment for that. And we behold your Son and his sacrifice, and we give him glory and honor for that, Lord, that he took that penalty, and he paid it once and for all. We pray that you be with us this week, Lord. We pray that we leave here changed. We pray that we have a deeper understanding and gratitude of Jesus Christ and that we profess him and be a light in this dark world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.